I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Hello everyone and welcome to this week's episode of the Proper Class Podcast. I'm Laura Checkley. And I'm Hannah Chiswick. And we are of course here to celebrate all things working class because if we don't, who the bloody hell will? I'm being reserved this week. First time for everything. (laughs) As always, we sit down with a working class hero to celebrate their life and achievements and discuss just how they got to where they are today. On that note, who are we celebrating this week, Laura? Well, it's fair to say that this week's guest is bossing this industry. Now, when I say he does it all, I mean he does it all and then some. He is an award-winning actor, writer, director, as well as a CEO and founder of the Triforce Creative Network, which is an organisation that promotes equal opportunities in the entertainment industry. I literally cannot wait to talk to him about that. This week's guest has been a regular on our TV screens for decades now. You may remember him in shows such as The Smoking Room, Coronation Street, London's Burning, The Vice, Midsummer Murders, BBC America's Undercover and NBC's International Ministries AD, to name but a few. He has made it onto the big screen too, starring in movies Intimacy, Revenge's Tragedy and the cult hit Adulthood. Not content with all that, he directs and writes too. Show off. (laughs) His directorial debut, Ambition to Live, saw him receive the Audience's Choice Awards at the London Film Network. As for his writing, well, that's not going too bad either. He's written on many BBC dramas and most notably a writer on Idris Elba's hit show In the Long Run for Sky. In 2016, he was co-creator of ITV's Sorry, I Didn't Know, an all-inclusive comedy panel show focusing on black history, which has had so far three series to date and has just been nominated for an RTS award. Nice. And not stopping there, in 2018, he co-founded Dandy, an industry-facing one-stop service that delivers diverse and inclusive talent directly to production companies, broadcasters and content creators. Jeez, I mean, I would ask him when he finds time to sleep, but I just read somewhere that he teaches yoga and meditation, so I think his his sleep is just fine, although I've just heard he's had a baby, so let's not talk about sleep. Maybe not. (laughs) Before we finally introduce him to you, let us read a little something he said that really resonated with me and Law. Inclusion and access aren't merely political aims. They should be the cornerstones of not only our creative industry, but core to our societal responsibility – If you include everybody, you don't need to exclude anyone. 
listeners, please give a very warm, proper class podcast welcome to the incredible trailblazer that is slightly tired new dad, Fraser Ayres. Wow, what an intro. What a marathon. We always like to give marathon intros because this is mostly about what you've achieved and obviously we'll talk about how you got there, but um, I know we've got like a, but my partner said to me today, I was reading an intro, I said, does this sound all right? She was like, yeah, it's just, it's quite long. I was like, yeah, of course, you have to celebrate everything you've done. Oh, you know thank, I mean? you, thank you. You know, only half of it's real, so it's all good. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't that what Wikipedia is for? Yeah. It, it doesn't have to be, doesn't have to be real, does it? In yourself. <laughs> and to be someone else, it's fine, it's fine. It just feels like you've had or have so many lives and so many strings to your bow like seriously I do mean that like when do you have time to do well now you're going to be a dad I mean you just got loads of people working for you now and just delegate well well um we, we, you know we we do have a team at Triforce now which is great you know um on the production company side as well as on the dandy side which is really really good but yeah being a new dad is is a wonderful wonderful challenge it's like <laughs> it's like the last 40 years didn't matter Yes. Like everything you, you were, everything you believed in, everything you like, it just, oh, you were playing. Oh, good for you. You were playing. Now it begins. And it's a beautiful <laughs> journey. It's a beautiful journey. Wow. And and how old is Bubs? So he's four months old and oh. him and mum are doing really, really well. So uh, new babies, but let's go back to like the first question that we always start with every week is asking our guest to take us back to somewhere, a time, a place that reminds them of their working class past. So if you could take me and Laura somewhere where and our listeners, where would you take us? Okie dokie. So I'm going to take you back to the Beaumont Lees estate in Leicester. And at the back of the courtyard on Linney Road, in a block of flats, there's a ground floor, two-bedroom flat. And that's where I grew up with my mom. And, you know, as soon as, it's funny, isn't it? It's like, we all know, but, you know, you've got some listeners who don't know. And it's like, as soon as you say a state, it's like they're just seeing, like, hurricanes and bins everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> and it's like, some days, but not all days. And I wanted to talk about this place. That's where I grew up. And my mom raised me in in that in that flat. And... The reason I wanted to go there is kind of take you through the door and it's not what you think it is. What my mum did was, like, you go into the little tiny little hallway and before you go into the lounge, she's made a curved archway. Oh. She plastered it herself and repainted wow. it in the flat. And then you go through into the lounge and she hand-built a red brick fireplace with a huge timber beam in it. This is in a flat. Wow. Not only is a state. <laughs> and my mum always, aspiration was a big thing. And mm. so when I was seven, I told my mum I wanted to be an actor. Single parent, no money, you know, Bob at least estate. And my mum was like, all right then, cool. We didn't know anyone. We didn't have any access. And, you know, that's a whole story how that all happened. Yeah. yeah. My mum didn't care. She was like, look, if if you you do what you love and you'll never work a day in your life, that kind of motto. And she made our house a little palace. <laughs> and it wasn't scummy and poor. and Because the love that she poured into that place and, it's quite funny when 
I was thinking about the audio experience of your show. And, you know, as soon as you use certain words and they like trigger us in particular directions. And I was like, no, I really want to talk about the aspiration and that mm. graft, without a doubt, the graft and, you know, the markets that she did for us. She'd, she'd um, get like a teapot. So this is the story of how I got to where I am at the beginning. Okay. So she'd put me in a pram and she would walk five miles because she couldn't afford the bus. And we would go to a car boot and she would buy like um, cutlery and teapots 20p 30p would come back with a box on my pram go back home and that week she would clean them in silver dips and wash them and do all that and the following week we would take that box with all the clean and good stuff and she would turn 20p into 40p she'd turn a quid to two quid and we did that and that for years and then she got a market store we did the same thing but and she literally went up and up and up. And all of that hard work basically went into me getting to London. That's incredible. She, she, was, she was from Scotland. And that big heart of aspiration and that big heart of constantly mm-hmm. like growing and evolving was in her. And it was really embodied in that little flat. And so even though it was just us, we had a sign in the toilet. It was like, no matter how big or small it is, a family together means home. Mm-hmm. And so Christmas is like, so she'd buy the things from car boots, like Lego and rewrap them or get things from car boots. And so Christmas, I had loads of presents that she would save up. I also found out later on that, you know, the, the way she paid for that is by going without food. But, you know, let, let's be positive. Uh, <laughs> you know, working class. Which was often the case, though, wasn't it? It was often the case, go without food and. Yeah, man, you got a kid there and, you know, you don't ever want, <laughs> I feel this now, but you don't ever want them to feel like they're going without. And, you know, with that circumstance, you mm. meld it, you manipulate it, you make it buckle under those circumstances until it works. And so, yeah, the place is that flat. When I hear you talking about that and the aspiration and stuff, it's, um, I just find it, uh, you know, as I'm sure you know, being working class, that a lot of people will hear council state immediately and think, oh, crikey, how bleak, how awful. But actually inside all those little places and those flats are people working not just really hard, but they have dreams. Mm-hmm. And, um, and you know, like your mum's story feels like, I thought you were going to turn around and say she was suddenly someone like, you know, like Lord Sugar, who's like turned, you know, like suddenly in the markets and then like worked way up. But there's something about that. Like my stepdad did the same. We had a little flat and he did it up and he ended up, you know, creating businesses, many lives and moving and shifting with the times all the time and, and created a life for us. And we felt like we never went without yeah. until obviously you see someone with, you know, you start bumping into posh people and you go, oh, right. Yeah. You know, but it's so, I really want to talk about the aspiration stuff because. We, we do, not just us actors, but, you know, like people that want to do things and, and want to be things. And like our mums that didn't get a go at that. Like your mum was probably, she probably could have been a kick-ass businesswoman, right, given the opportunity and the... This is the thing. I mean, what she managed to build, um, you know, we had, you know, so she we, we did that. And this was the thing about the flat as well. It, it was a flat on an estate, but she managed, we managed to get an exchange to a middle-class area. 
Wow. Yes. Because it was so dope that those middle class people went, I, I don't care about living on the estate. This is an amazing flat. And they moved. <laughs> and then it was quite interesting because there was more violence and more problems in that middle class place than there was the working class place. Mm-hmm. And that community that comes together in working class places, everyone knows where they are in that pecking order and how things yeah. are and how things run and who you can lean on for sugar. And, you know, can you hold the baby for five minutes? Like, you know what that is. When we're on the estate and when we're in that environment, like we want more, we work for more, but there is an understanding of circumstance. Yeah. And then the, the higher up you got the chain. So when I went to that kind of middle class place, people like, people wanted fights. People, people wanted me to join their <laughs> gang because I was from Beaumont Lees. And you're like, why are you lot fighting? Like, there's no need for that. There's no need. <laughs> now I am in this very, you know, affluent place uh, in Nottingham. The complaints I hear from neighbours or the local, <laughs> and now this is this place is ridiculous. It's like Jake Bugs got a place here. Do you know what I mean? Like he doesn't even well, need. It's like it's ridiculous this place, and the complaints that come from yeah. people like I think I've landed, and I'm like, oh my god, a green tree! Oh my god, yeah. I'm so happy yeah. to be here, and they really don't understand how fortunate they are in terms of that gap. And they don't see it. And I think it gets worse the higher up the class chain you get, that that privilege kind of just blinds your ass. Yeah. You talk about moving to like a middle class area as a kid. Did that mean you moved schools yeah. as well? Moved school. And how was that? How how was school? Like how was moving school? And it was it was it was it, you know it was it was definitely different and interesting. And again, you know, on the estate there was people who looked like me. Like, we're the first generation of mixed race kids. Like, <laughs> there was a bunch of us. <laughs> there was a bunch of us. <laughs> and then you go to this kind of middle-class place and there, there's not so many. And it was quite interesting that there were real problems with racism on, on the Bumatlees estate back in the 80s, without a doubt. I experienced it. My mum experienced it. Bless, it was there. But again... When you go to that middle class place, it's almost like there's enough capacity to be a real dick about it. Yeah, 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 right. Really? It's like when, when you're broke, you haven't got a lot of time to really do a lot of stuff about <laughs> how you hate brown people. Do you know what I mean? You haven't got a lot of time on your hands. Because <laughs> when you're middle class, you can be more leisured about it and, you know, afford the Daily Mail and stuff and, and <laughs> that kind of thing, you know? Yeah. <laughs> and when we moved, it, it was really, really different. And I found the people really different. Um, even being very, very young. And it took me, I never adjusted. Mm. And funny enough, it's something that I've encountered, you know, like in our industry. I, I remember when I first came to our industry and my agent, she was amazing. She was amazing. But she was like, you need to get rid of that accent. That's the first thing off, mate. Get rid of that. That's not going to work. You need to just deaden that. I think privilege is a real pain in the bum. I think privilege really gets in the way of an awful lot of these issues all the way through. Do you know what I mean? And it permeates everything and those, those kind of decisions and who gets hired and who doesn't and who's in fad and who isn't. Um, And unfortunately that's something that still exists and it it exists on the estate level or it exists on that, you know, your home level, but it exists kind of in your industry as well. And I think that for me, when you look at, the things that my mum put in me, like look after each other, empathy, kindness, those things, those things that aren't about be a better businessman, have more acumen, those kind of things. Mm. Again, as you kind of come across people who have a little bit more capacity for a little bit 
more beyond survival, they kind of squander it. Yeah. And so the things that are important to them are making more money or mm-hmm. being more famous rather than enjoying life, so to speak. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And so I think now settled outside of Beaumont Lees ever again and that's why I'm bloody chippy. So how old when you went over to that new school how old were you? Uh, uh, 11. And do you feel like looking back that did it give you a good education were you academic did you feel like you thrived more there than if you'd have stayed back in the old place? Um, do, no, because it was a bit of a dive. Right, right. It was, it was a bit of a dive in itself. Um, and actually, the education side of me was always kind of self-driven outside of, of, of the kind of uh, schools that I went to. But that place then gave me access to um, a grammar school. Yeah, there you go, yeah. Ooh, and this is back in the day of catchment. I, you know, and I know that stuff still applies, but... Like, that was a big thing, a grammar school. And then you get there and it's just another dive. <laughs> yeah, right. Oh, hang on, my mum's done all this work and, it, and it's a pit. Uh, but, you know, we had access to the grammar school in that place for, uh, from Blaby where we were. And so, again, that that enabled me to kind of dive right into my GCSEs and, and pursue this path to initially going to drum school. But been that idea when my mum got ill, she got quite sick. And I was like, I'm not going to London while you're poorly. Sod that. It's not going to happen. Um, so that was, it gave us access to that better education, the things on paper that people will recognize that enable you to change those circumstances, you know? And then, <laughs> so we did that, got the grammar school, got the grades, went to college, and then I quit three months before my exams. <laughs> oh. I had a predicted A and two Bs. I was going to kill it. and I, But I realised three months before the end, I was wasting my time. And what did you feel like you were wasting your time just on academia? Were you like, why am I doing these? Like, what, I'm just delaying doing what I really want to do. Yeah, or... I'd, I'd had the great fortune of doing a, a, a film in the middle of that uh, education in the summer. And it became rapidly apparent that this theoretical exploration of acting was zero to do with the practical application of it. Right. Um, so I went to my tutors uh, and I had amazing tutors. I had uh, Melissa Sands, who was one of the co-founders of Rambert. She was teaching at Martin Oh, Mobile. wow. And yeah, she was there at the beginning. Yeah. Uh, you had Sally, who set up Trestle Theatre Company, you know, the mass. Oh, wow. Oh, my God, I my love Trestle. You know. Um, and uh, Melton Mowbray had recently, um, the, 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 the college had got some money from the lottery. And we had a proper theatre and a sprung floor. Wow. Wow. Yeah, it was big things. And that was the place. If you're into acting, like, but that was a four-hour journey from where I lived Jeez. to there and back. Like, buses into town, buses out to the country, you know, having to do all that. And was this, was this like a free, it wasn't fee-paying or anything like that? It was no, a free education. Um, but you had to travel to get to that school, do you know what I mean? And then they did auditions. You money for that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, you know, and that's where the markets, you know, supported that. So we'd work markets at the weekend and we'd go and do all that in car boots and then go and do the school during the week, do the journey, spin it round. And it was quite a thing when, so I went to my tutors and I was like, I think I'm wasting my time. And they went, you are. 
Wow. Wow. Because they're all like real practitioners. Like, look, there's like, we love you. You love us. It's all good. And <laughs> oh my God. And they were like, we're going to write incredible things in your record of achievement. <laughs> now, I don't know if all your listeners know about the Red Book, the record of achievement. This was, Come on. this was the thing, man. Like, you could swear. <laughs> But as long as it didn't make it into that red book, like you could be prime minister. It didn't mean anything. Uh, and so I told them and then I went back and told my mom and um, my mom, we had this thing called devil's advocate, which is if I was like, black is black, she'd be like, no, black is white. And we would just go back and forth and work it out until we get to the truth. And so I said to her, I, I, I think I need to leave. She's like, we're three months off this thing that's been in play for seven years. Yeah, yeah. I know. And we did Devil's Advocate. And then she said back to me, we're going to sort this out tomorrow and you're going to leave. Like, even those three months is a waste of time. Let's not do that. Wow. Yeah, she was amazing. She was amazing. Wow, that, that is amazing. And how did you end up doing that um, film? How did that film come to pass um, that you'd done in the summer? Well, I, I guess this is, you know, kind of bang on what we're talking about. So back in the day, it, there used to be, Pretty much every theatre in the country had a youth group. Right. Every school, pretty much. And what it meant was is that anybody from anywhere in those areas could have access to that. Yeah. It it might be hard for them to find out it even exists. And as I didn't know, it was a teacher who was like, we want you to apply for this. But anybody could have a shot at that. And then they could go and be in the theatre and be with kids from all different areas and that kind of thing. Um, and I joined the Leicester Haymarket uh, Youth Theatre oh, sure. uh, when I was like 10, 10, 11, really, really young. We did a play. It did very well. Um, and at the time, there was a thing called the Lloyds Bank Challenge, which was oh. all the young plays across the country. And then the best ones would get picked and get to perform on the Olivier. So there's me, Beaumont Lee's boy, on the Olivier it, you know, chatting with Ian McKellen, <laughs> 11 years old, like. Oh, that's amazing. And did you have any idea of the gravitas of that? Were you just like just bowling up to this theatre going, oh, this is cool? No, no, I wanted to be an actor. I, I actually had Ian McKellen's Hamlet poster, like, as 11 with Hamlet wow. on my team. <laughs> like, like I, I, this was my absolute dream. Uh, like just unfolding, you know, live, so to speak, at a very young age. So we did that play. And then the director did another play that was a professional play in London. And she cast me in that. And from that wow. age, at the age of, I was 12 at that point. And so that's how I then had an agent who, you know, she really, really looked after me and supported me. And she was like, I don't want to burn you out. We want to make those steps and so she did and I got that film Speak Like a Child when when I was 15 Wow! Um, and before that I'd done a little London's Burning and a little bit of The Bill you know while doing my education you know Amazing. so again I was really fortunate to have people around me that or introduced to people that were like I've got you it's okay I see what you're trying to do here. Did those like early experiences because that's we talk about this so much like I think our guests have been, we're so lucky, they've been so diverse in, in the areas that they come from, the areas that they now work in. And But I'd say that like access and financial access to start being able to start your career, or, or I say access, I think that's probably 
the opposite of what I mean, really, mm-hmm. like financial barri- barriers, really. Um, do you think a lot of, because you've done so much to address that, do you feel like those early experiences of your own, like, have stayed with you and as soon as you were able to do something about it, you yeah, have? That's literally where Triforce came from. You know, I had a bit of a voice and I was like, actually, I think I know what the problems are. And therefore, I think I can find the solutions to these problems. And so that's literally what it was. Like I said, that chippiness that comes through. Chippiness, yeah. Okay, well, I'm going to build an organization that's just chippy. <laughs> and we're just going to do chippy stuff for a couple of decades. That's it. Um, so absolutely that informed that. And it's it's quite interesting as well because, you know, talk about the 80s. And again, some of your listeners will be like, yeah, bleak times. But there was actually more opportunity in the 80s. Like, like. Me and my wife were joking about this. She was like, you know, you're the Tory wet dream. It's like, what? <laughs> oh, f- oh, no, shit, I am. I am literally the Tory wet dream. Oh, no, this is awful. <laughs> and when I look at the 80s, you know, that theatre that had a bit of funding behind it that could do things right. and all of that, that access, like, that was gone in the 90s. And so, again, when we, when we set up Triforce and we created the monologue slam, which is around the country and getting actors doing doing that whole thing. Yeah, when you were doing that, like we were doing that because the theatres didn't have those access points. They didn't have those pathways. So in, in some ways, you know, there was kind of more access. Like I don't think I could get through now. Like if I was but like, yeah, you know, yeah. I'm glad my son is uh, upper middle class now because I did, like if he was me, mm-hmm. I'm not sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm not sure. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, I went to drama school, uh, like it was under a Labour government and they, I can't tell you how many people were on scholarships, like working class. And it was like, I was so, like, it was just like, wow. Um, I mean, because I'd never, ever have been able to go to drama school, like forget it. My mum was like, you need to get a scholarship. Yeah. So it always felt really like, you know, just felt like I, this is never going to happen, but I'll give it a go. And luckily under a Labour government, then I went, but. You know, forget it now. I wouldn't have got. Yeah. Wouldn't been, I wouldn't even gone for an audition for it. I mean, now to audition for a drama school. I mean, you're talking. What is it? Hand these days, sixty, seventy quid, something like that. I don't know, but it's enough. And then you know, if you're not in London, that's like such a London centric thing as well. Yeah. You know, obviously, if you're living in, well, anywhere outside of London, once you've got to get on a train, they're extortionate, and you've got to maybe stay over. And you're interested in eating that day. What about some food that day? Like, yeah. Oh, yeah. good luck. Even stuff like, if you think about like particularly musical theatre, which I direct quite a lot of, but if you look at musical theatre, like there's such a massive, massive, like how many young working class people get to practice a song with a pianist? Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Like that, there are so many different examples mm. of where there is inequality of access. Like that is such a privilege, like to understand what sheet music is, to have somebody who's taught you how to read it. I mean, I've been directing musicals for 20 years now. I can't read sheet music. I-, I can't read music. No one ever taught me to read music. I did three years worth of training and still can't read music. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's just shameful. But, <laughs> but do you know what I mean? And in all seriousness, I see young people all the time. I was doing some auditions for the National Youth Music Theatre. And, you know, it's a fantastic thing. But when I first went, as a grown woman, like as a director, I've been directing a long time and was there, and I was like, this is a school do you know what I mean? This is a school. This is where people go to school. I couldn't believe it. But also, there was like a young guy who came, and he was a young black kid from East London. And he said, "I don't really know much about musicals. I just really like them, and I'd like to do some." 
and they and he sat, he was in this room and he like got up to sing, and I could see him watching. I could see his literally his confidence, his love, his everything draining from his body, watching people get up with sheet music taped the right way, knowing what they were doing, and he had some lyrics written on a bit of A four. And I just kept him behind afterwards and I said, listen, I'm a woman in my 40s and I feel out of place here. You are not worse than those people. You just haven't had the same access. It doesn't make you worse. In fact, it makes you... Uh, chippy is my favourite word, so I appreciate your use of it. It makes you chippier. It makes you more. You've got here. You've turned up. You've found out about this. You've written those lyrics out yourself. And even though you know at the moment they're better than you, you still did up and yeah. did your thing. One of the things we talk about it with Triforce and Dandy is a quality and equity. The difference between those two things. Do you know what I mean? We want a quality. The, the, the device is equity. And when you have these kind of Tory bods going, well, I did it. Oh. And you go, yeah, your starting position was a comp- was like a mile ahead. And every five minutes you stop for a tasty oh. orange. Yeah, right. And that like access really is an issue. And that's what, you know, that's what we literally what we try to do, Triforce. We try and give as much time. We, like we get a CV in from someone and it doesn't look right. We will contact them. <laughs> and mm-hmm. like, we now have 26,000 people on our internal network. That's so amazing. So that's a lot of people. But we've got the people to go, hi, listen, I've seen your CV. Let me just go through that with you. You put these things at the top. You do this. Don't do it in Comic Sans. Yeah. <laughs> you know, all that kind of thing. Because no one has ever taken that time. Yeah. And if you don't know, you don't sure. know. And that's it. You don't know what you don't know. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? 
For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Let's go back to you. So presumably that then all led on to you. You were talking about drama school. And so I guess all these wonderful teachers around you were going, oh, try here, try there. Did, did you go to drama school? No, yeah, I, didn't. Did. I didn't. That was where my mum took poorly. And so I, I had, you know, we were doing the scholarship. But you were going to, your plan was to. Yeah, and you, yeah, yeah, right, right. Uh, and then mum got ill and it was like, I just don't want to be away from her. Do you know what I mean? Oh, I'm, not, yeah. I'm, not, I'm not about that. So we kind of rejigged things a little bit. Um, and then we basically worked really hard to kind of get us both down. My mum was like, my mum was so fatalistic, but she would call it realistic. Do you know what I mean? She's like, well, we know I'm going to die soon, so let's get you down to London. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Do you know what I mean? Like, oh, my God. Oh, love you. Council house, and that will transfer to you, so we need to get you down there. And that was, like, she was pragmatic. And, you know, and then she lived for another, you know, 20-odd years, God bless her. Um, but she then kind of moved us down to London via Southend into London um, and then when she got really really poorly and I was much older and I was making a bit of money then I was like do you know what this is this is my turn now and I said we're leaving London and she refused she was like no this has literally been the whole thing for 20 odd years like no and I went it, it's not worth it like London's a horrible place to be poorly particularly terminally ill mm. and it can be very lonely and isolated and I was like, no. So the compromise was if we could find somewhere that we could commute. And so we ended up in Colchester, which was like 45 minutes to Liverpool Street. Right, okay, yeah. So we exchanged to there and we ended up in Colchester for the kind of the remainder eight years uh, of her life and stuff. And again, it, it was that negotiation with her because she was very clear on where she, what she was doing for me and supporter. And, and without her none of it would have happened. And so in terms of access, she may not have known, you know, famous actors or had the money for university, but she always, with what she had, provided mm. as much access as she could. Tell our listeners about a bit about Triforce and how that all started and why that started. I know, obviously, because you feel passionate, but when did all that come about? That, that kind of started, its kind of main seed was like 2003. So I'd been acting you know, off and on since I was like 12 from that point and doing different bits, doing movies, doing bits of TV and stuff. And I was doing a play in Edinburgh. And uh, for your listeners who don't know about Edinburgh, like it's just where everyone goes in August. It's just like a whole industry gravitates to Edinburgh and just gets, sees shows, chats, gets very, very drunk. And, just, and Paul. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. If you've yeah. ever produced a show there, <laughs> Paul. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so we, as a, we were in Edinburgh 2003 doing a play called The People Next Door. And I was there with uh, my fellow actor, Jimmy Akambola. And this was the days before the underbelly and before kind of everything had like Spiegel tents and thing. And basically, like it was all kind of disparate and everywhere all over Edinburgh. And we managed to get like half of Edinburgh inside this really nasty club called The Establishment. But The Establishment plays hip hop. And we packed it out. It was crazy. 
And I was there with Jimmy and we just looked at this vibe and this love and this joy. And we were just like, this doesn't exist in London. Mm. And we realized that when you go to Edinburgh, everyone's like, hey, what are you doing? Let me come and see your show. This is what I'm doing. And there was this kind of collaboration and there's kind of like a leveling of creatives in a sense. Yeah. Which in London, the first question is like, who's your agent? Are you working? Good. (laughs) Oh, come on. Yeah. We were like, what happens if we could take this to London? where actors felt safe, actors from all walks of life felt safe together. And what if we got a whole bunch of directors and casting directors really pissed? <laughs> what would happen? And that was the beginning of Trifles. <laughs> <laughs> that is literally the best business plan I have ever heard. <laughs> like, no, your business model, Fraser. <laughs> it's yeah, it involves yeah. lots of alcohol. And it broke privilege. So we had like top tier casting directors coming, getting drunk and, you know, cards on the table. Those kind of people get scared around working class people, black people, female people, disabled people. Like they just get uncomfortable, (laughs) particularly on mass. Yeah. So it was like, Mm -hmm. let's get you drunk, have a good night. And these people would come, rave it up. And one of one of our big stories from them was, do you remember the Scorpion King? Like the, it was the offshoot from The Mummy. It was, it was the thing that all, right. all, right, all that yeah, stuff. Yeah. So the Scorpion King was happening. We had the casting director. He came and had an amazing time. And then six people got auditions on Monday who didn't even have agents. Wow. And three of them ended up in the film. <laughs> and it just broke those barriers. They just had a good time. And, oh, God, yes. I'm not awkward around you. because well, And over the years, it just broke down and broke down and broke down. And we did that with the readings at Soho Theatre and kept that ethos behind it. And then we did Monologue Slam and, again, kept that ethos of casting directors and actors. And, again, it, it was finding a solution to that problem of privilege and the distancing that that privilege creates. How do you find um, at being a working-class actor and stepping, for, I guess, in what feels like quite a middle-class uh, a sort of uh, surroundings so like if you go to the national or wherever you went do you have you ever had imposter syndrome i mean literally every day mm. that that is something and it's something that i mentor uh, a lot of people trying through that as well because it's actually really toxic you know like things like mm. um guilt like guilt is not a productive emotion it does not help you in any way. It can point you in a direction, and once it's pointed, there's no point holding guilt. Like you need to move that. And it's same as that imposter thing. It's actually not productive, and it's quite toxic. And it knocks on to so many things. You know, self-selection, self-sabotage. You know, you're always late for things. You're, you're not going up mm. for things. You know? mm. We actually do a lot of research around people who apply for jobs. Um, and so, like, we will open up a pathway and scheme. And there's really fascinating stuff. Like, so if you open up a program, okay, and we're like, we want writers, we want writers, and we're going to open up this window for writers to come in like we do with Writers Slam. So you do it, and in the first week, it's all middle-class white men. Mm. It's all you get. Because they're the ones who are like, God damn it, you've been lucky to have it. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, and they've got the confidence to go, yeah, you want to hear it. This is excellent. So you get that in the first week and then you get kind of like it merges in the, in the middle bit. But then towards the end, that's when you get working class people in a flurry. Yeah. That's when you interestingly, if you're, if you're looking at the gender, that's when all the women. Mm. Are that's mad. That is fascinating. And there's actually a lot of research been done about um, men and women applying for jobs. So when there's a job description, men need like 30% of it. 
to go, yeah, man, I'm gonna apply for that. I'll be cool. I can do that shit. <laughs> like, <laughs> women need like 86% minimum. Yeah. For yeah, sure. Yeah. Before they leave and look, oh, that's not for me. Like, and so again, you've got that kind of, and that's self-selection, imposter syndrome, you know, from from the gender it's aspect. So but those things end up really impacting our behaviors and, and you know our our own abilities for success a little bit. And it is that imposter, and it is something I have fought and fought and fought. I'm actually just like flashing back to like even recent things where I'm like, yeah, I, you know, I've questioned whether I should be there. And then what ends up happening with me, and it's not perfect, um, and welcome to the psychology session. <laughs> uh, it's not perfect, but I end up then overcompensating and being like ultra, like on top of that. Do you yeah, know yeah, what yeah, right. I do. do. You know what I, mean? I just go in normal like Dave. I have to go yeah. in like up here. Do you know what I, I mean? admire that so much. Like I'll be on set, you know, and I'll, I'll watch a, a, a white male, straight male stand and hold court really confidently. I think I'm pretty confident, but I'm not. An academic, never have been. I was terrible at school. Um, possible, though, self-diagnosed, impossible dyslexia, all of that going on. So when I'm surrounded by, you know, those sort of very theatrical actors, that well-read and obviously Oxbridge, Cambridge, those sort of kind of backgrounds, I shrink massively mm. still at 43, even when I could just go, do you know what, walk away, Laurie, you don't want to sit and talk to them people anyway. But often... I will sit there and just completely shrink and shrivel because I think I have nothing interesting to say. When I do talk, some people take the piss out of my accent. They think it's funny. Or they think it's, um, I, I don't know, endearing. Uh, I don't know. So I don't think people are doing it to be mean often. They just go, oh, right, Laura. Um, it's their biases. Yeah, yeah. And and then obviously, you know, I'm queer. So I've got all of all of that. I've always had all of that going on. But I think, come on, Laura, you're 43. You've got interesting things to say. You fucking don't matter. They ain't read that book. I'm going to talk about something else. And I just sit there and what, what I do is I'll go on my phone or like, and that's still at 43. So when you're thinking about youngsters that are, you know, trying to put themselves forward for anything these this day and age and they ain't got any money, they haven't really done well at school, you think how are they even going to get through an application where they initially see that it might cost them 60 quid to audition? How do they even know what drama school is? How do they, And it's all about going back to that the beginnings of careers and beginnings of how you get into this industry. And I just think it's amazing what you're doing because a lot of people in your position don't, so do I. Um, you know, uh, and I think it's, I just think it's just so incredible. And um, yeah, I think they're, they're very lucky to have that access. And I really want people to know, because, you know, I didn't know half the stuff that you, you that you were doing. Um, and I just really hope that there are more youngsters out there that will just figure out that there's, someone like you and your your uh, and with dandy and everything that they, there is access and there's a possibility it just feels really hopeful and wonderful well we ha we so. recently uh hired a, a, a outreach person for dandy as well and so now we're actually going into the schools yeah so I say, have you been in schools brilliant like it's like we we operate you know at all levels but we also handle the entry point and you go well that's the point where you've already been to school and had the I'm going to do this. I'm going to be a director. I'm, you've already had that. Yeah, right. And that's the thing we're talking about that's completely missing. So we're like, actually, we need to go back to school and we're going to like GCSE level that like, actually, we're yeah, going to yeah. that level. So then the thoughts can emerge that you can then do that. Because unless you go back far, far enough, it just it don't work. It don't work. It's, it's sort of too late, isn't it? And um, yeah. marks are made and, and yeah, you feel like your path's made. 
Yeah, yeah, exactly. Because other than that, it's luck, right? Other than that, it is luck that you get a teacher that went to Ron Bear and knows where she should be sending you. Other than that, it is just luck. Everything for me was luck. And then on top of that, wonderful parents that support and put everything into hours, money that they didn't have. Yeah, right. And it's an ongoing, ongoing um, thing, isn't it? Yeah. If you were like, um, I, I, I'm sure like we might all feel like this, but I sway between feeling extremely optimistic about how the industry, the kind of arts are changing and becoming more inclusive and deeply depressed about the fact that it feels like we're back in the 80s mm. and I sort of uh, switch, switch back and forth on an hourly basis. If, obviously, you're, you're watching this all the time and you're working on this. Like, how do you feel? Do, do you think things are getting better? Is there more... Do you think people are like looking at diversity in all its widest forms and like there are more access points or do you still look at it and think this is a huge mountain that we're just at the bottom of? Um, it's actually it's actually a completely different conversation post COVID and post unfortunately George Floyd. Yeah. Like yes. the drum that we banged for 15 years. So what we do is we go, okay, look, that people come to us and go, can you get us a black writer for this? Or can we get these actors from one? Absolutely. Can you support us so we can continue to find Dwayne in Birmingham? Yeah, right. Yeah. Ooh, and it's all around the soft arts of, ooh, those incidents happened and literally our door, people have been banging down our door. But this is also a kind of interesting division. We had to divide up between the arts world and kind of the TV and film world, because actually they're completely different worlds. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And back in my day, you know, you go through the theatre, you cut your teeth, you get an audition for the bill. Like, <laughs> yeah. that's not really the way anymore in terms of what theatres have become and quite closed off to their local communities and the kind of things that they're showing. 100%. So that kind of route of access into that TV world, it's not really that way anymore. And then the arts world itself, we found it to be, like we never, over all the work that we've ever done, we have never, ever, ever, and we have tried, we have never been supported by the Arts Council. What? Literally not once. I find that mind-blowing. That's, that's for my part two podcast, but we were never supported by them, no matter how hard we tried. But the receptivity that we're getting now is from the TV and film world. Mm-hmm. And it's not from the arts world. It's from that world. And so it looks like one industry, but actually they are two pocket industries. And, where the TV and film industry have kind of gone, oh, we really need to sort this out. Don't get me wrong. They're sorting it out car money. Yeah, yeah, sure. <laughs> they're like, no, no one's got a soul. No one's got a soul. <laughs> it, it's, it's the money and the, the kind of impetus from the Americans coming as to what needs to be done. Mm-hmm. But what's kind of happened with the arts world is, is that an awful lot of those very, very posh boys and girls who are running the theatres, now there's no money in it. Hmm. And they're leaving in droves and artistic directors are not the ones pre-covid and the kind of you know stage awards game they all play about the arts and you know all that kind of thing the game stopped and it became not very fun for a lot of these people and they've kind of gone oh well i'll go and do that other thing i was going to do and they're doing that that leaves a gap for us and it's interesting when you see hires like the hiring of Lorne Campbell at the National Theatre of Wales. He makes Corbyn look right wing. Lorne Campbell does, man. Like, <laughs> like, he's red, red, red. And you see that National Theatre of Wales hiring that kind of artistic director for their organisation. And his things like local community, everything Wales, black people, disabled people. And you see that. 
that's the kind of change that the arts world really, really needs. And I think, mm-hmm. hopefully, fingers crossed, is going through. Because even the shareholders of these buildings and, and the committees, they understand that unless they repurpose their buildings, their building simply cannot exist. Yeah. And I think that's exciting. And that's where the arts world can start to catch up in that space as we're making more and more appointments of more and more interesting people that aren't just handpicked by the Arts Council. (laughs) Well, I hope you're right. I really do. Um, Will you try to instill some working class values into, is it her or he? It's he, Elliot. Elliot. Elliot, Yeah, Yeah, we've been talking about this. (laughs) I had a conversation with a friend of mine and he was like, but he doesn't need to have your baggage. No, that's true. Like, he doesn't need to have your, like that imposter thing. Like he doesn't need to have, he doesn't need to be chippy. And I was like, do you know what? I actually agree with that actually. And you're yeah. right. Do you know what I mean? But that's not going to happen but. because privilege is so out of control in this realm right now. And particularly in our country that unless there is a counter, then you just like the tide makes you a narcissist. The tide makes you self-serving. The tide, it's just the way society is right now. Mm-hmm. And unless you mm-hmm. have that kind of, you put something in the ground, you are inevitably going to be that kind of that person. <laughs> Me and my wife were talking, I was like, the moment he is cognitive and he's like, Meh. he's in the car, we're driving to Leicester. I'm <laughs> at my flat and go see that when daddy was your age he lived there any questions so between those two camps of don't make it chippy and actually it's your responsibility in this position to be extra chippy actually because you've got the energy the resources to do that chippiness somewhere between there i'll probably find myself with him (laughs) i'm sure we sadly have to finish um and Obviously, you'll know we always finish up the show asking if you could say ce- uh, we've been celebrating you today. If uh, you could celebrate anyone today, uh, who would that be? Uh, that's going to be my dear mum, uh, Christina Anderson Ayres. And I literally wouldn't be where I am without her and that work and that drive and that aspiration. You know, you, you, I, I won't go over much more about her because your listeners have been smattered with stories throughout throughout this but she was an incredible woman and she fully enough being a parent, you know, and here I am in my lovely yard with my wife and, you know, in a world where my mixed race child is a beautiful rainbow being <laughs> literally the opposite of what my mum grew up in when she had me. And I think of, you know, that equality equity and you think of what she had to do just to bloody wake up and get out of bed in a day. Do you know what yeah. I mean? Right. And that strength and that courage. And I know that she wouldn't have had that if she was middle class. <laughs> that sounds awful. And I know she wouldn't. She just yeah. it was the grind that made her what she was and made her fight outside of that. And for me, she is literally the definition of that working class hero, that it wasn't just sit in an armchair and complain about people you've never met. Mm. It was like, no, I have two. Let me see what I can do with those two. For me, that's kind of the essence of what we all do as working class people. And the conversation before the actual podcast, just when I was talking about building the website for you when I was younger. Yeah. It's what we do as working class people, isn't it? We just get on with it. We make it happen and we do it. And I think my mum truly, truly embodied that. 
Oh. Well, she's left an, an, an incredible legacy with you. And, and yeah, I, she sounds like such an, an amazing woman. She was. She's brilliant. Uh, and just tell us her full name again. Christina anderson Ayres. Well, we're celebrating her as well as you today, Fraser. Thank you so much. You're honestly such a huge inspiration. I'm so glad we finally got you on here to chat. But we will be, we're so up for part two, aren't we, Anne? Yeah, I'm totally up for that. Do you know what? You've uh, you've given me a good, I, I, I mean this as the biggest compliment I could give you, give me a really good injection of chippiness and <laughs> sometimes rattling around in, I'm in the, uh, I'm in the arty bit of the industry yeah. and rattling around as a big, like, loud, earring wearing southeast london woman it's sometimes i need to like you know plug back into my chippy working class mates it's just what i needed thank you so much thank you for having me it's been brilliant thank you i mean what an incredible man i mean so inspiring and his mum's story as well really got me like do you know what he sort of epitomizes like what we always wanted the podcast to be about because you remember that thing when we was you once said to me I don't know if you remember this when we were talking about it in the podcast you said oh like whenever you mention an estate to anyone everyone just thinks of shameless like that's what everyone yeah. thinks but then when he was talking obviously you know our listeners can hear the passion in his voice but just looking at his face and how it lit up talking about his uh, flat on his estate in Leicester and his mum and the way he spoke about them as a team and he's literally just radiates joy when he uh, talks about it and it's just such a sort of um, absolutely epitomises what we always hoped the podcast would be which was like a true celebration of what, what celebration a background, yeah. and, and hope because he feels he, it just made me feel really hopeful and like I you know, said and, yeah with a with a real sense of yeah I'm going to go back out there and uh, I'm going to send that email today and I'm going to be chippy but I'm going to be hopeful <laughs> exactly chippy and hopeful I might have that maybe we should get that made as t-shirts <laughs> chippy but hopeful I love that listeners if anyone's up for that uh, anyone wants to design us a hoodie t-shirt mug uh, chippy but hopeful <laughs> we'll go with that that's our motto for the week oh well that's it for this week guys what an amazing guest so inspiring Um, And maybe you'll go into the rest of your week being chippy and hopeful too. We'll be back next week for more, uh, for more, for more, Hannah. Do you know what's this weekend, Hannah? Oh, no, I'm busy this weekend. It's my hen do, folks. Oh, we're off to Brighton. Watch out, Brighton. The nanas are in town. (laughs) We'll see you next week, probably with a much heavier head. um, And hopefully I won't be tied or lost in Brighton, tied to a lamppost somewhere. to wait and see have a great week guys and remember keep it classy the proper class podcast is produced by michelle far scott for rangaby productions edited by james torrance with music by tommy music Please don't forget to like and subscribe. Spread the word. Tell your friends, neighbours, whoever will listen. We've also got an Instagram page. Ooh, get us. And you can follow all the news and goss at The Proper Class Podcast. And if you haven't nodded off yet, we've also gone and got ourselves an official email. So do get in touch. The email is properclasspodcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening, folks. And remember, keep it classy.